Welcome to the Drew Barrymore-thon. I'm Taylor. And I'm Patrick. And I have a question for you, Taylor. Oh my goodness, are we continuing this bit? It's the it's like the one bit we do on the show. That's true. That's true. Well, I first before we get into the question, oh. did I did I do the Drew Barrymore-a-thon better this time? Did it sound less awkward? I mean, it didn't bother me last time. In fact, I I might even venture to say that I prefer last time. Oh. I, I thought we were doing the Barrymore-a-thon. Like just welcome to the Barrymore-a-thon. Yeah. Oh. I don't know. I mean, it it listen. It doesn't roll off the tongue in the same way. I think for 50 episodes, you're going to hate the way that you say it. Yeah. I mean, I don't even like the way that I sound talking for any ounce of the episode. So it's fine. I shouldn't think too much about it. I have a question for you, Taylor. I might have an answer depending on the question, Patrick. When Drew Barrymore was six years old, she was making Mm E.T. What were you doing when you were six years old? Um... I was, I guess, in kindergarten, maybe first grade, uh, being a queen, uh, I, I was doing really well in my classes, um, what else was I doing? Oh, I was getting a dog, I think, or we were looking for a dog, a new puppy to bring to the family, um, and I don't know, just generally not being nearly as successful as Drew Barrymore. Were you the same uh, level of math as she was? Because we were watching some behind-the-scenes stuff where she was going, 90 and 90 is 100. And somebody went, oh, I thought that was 50 and 50. And she went, no, it's 90 and 90. I would say that I had a similar level of bullshitting. <laughs> and I think that still carries through today. Yeah, nothing has changed. Um, No. I So, okay, contrary to pop- popular belief, you know, I, I am very bad at math now in, in my elder years, um, but I was really good as a kid because I was obsessed with like studying and memorizing because I had to memorize because I couldn't do it in my head. Because as I've mentioned to you before, although probably for the first time on the show, I can't see things in my head. So mental math is very difficult. But I was on, I was on that memorization grind when I was six. Welcome to the Drew Barry Morathon. This is the show where we're watching every single Drew Barry Moore movie in chronological order, trying to chart, track film history over the past 40 years or so uh, through her career. This is a really great episode for that because not only are we going to talk about E.T., one of the most beloved films of all time, we're also talking about her first appearance hosting SNL. And lots of interesting SNL history stuff going on in 1982. So big year for Drew. Let's jump right into it. Before I give the blockbuster video guide to movies, excuse me, guide to movies and videos 1995 synopsis of E.T., quickly tell your experiences with E.T. up until two hours ago. So I had never seen, to my memory, I don't think I had ever seen E.T. all the way through. I, and I know some of you guys are like gasping right now, but here's the thing. Um, E.T. scared the ever-loving shit out of me, like always. Um, I, I semi-remembered like watching it and then making my mom turn it off, and then that being it. And I called my mom before recording to verify this, and she said yes. 
I sat down, I sat you down, we watched it one day, and once they got to E.T. being in the closet, that was it. You were hysterical, you had to turn it off, and it took me years to even, like, mention the name E.T. Um, and I, she says that I then, several years later, actually watched it all the way through. I don't feel like that's true. I feel like if I was that much older, I would have remembered, and I, I have no memory of it. Um... But yes, E.T. has scared, scared the crap out of me. And I remember being a child and making a conscious decision to never watch this movie. And if it weren't for this project and having to watch it, I was like fully intending to stay like devote, devoted to that, to that promise. I was like, no, I just will never watch E.T. It just scares me. He scares me. I, it's, it's so weird because I love aliens. Like, I devour any alien movie and any alien documentary and any alien docu-series, like, anything. Um, but I just am terrified of E.T. I found him so creepy. All right. So, the Blockbuster Video Guide to Movies and Videos 1995 gives it four stars, which is the maximum. Odd. Odd? People love this movie. No, I'm saying, like, four stars, not five. Oh, um, I, th- I think... I think Letterboxd is odd with the five stars, actually. No, I feel like five stars is like a 21st century thing. Anyway. Well, this is 1995. Okay. Well, I'm just saying like, but Letterboxd shouldn't be odd. Okay. Spielberg finds the magic formula for kids of all ages in this classic tale of a cute alien who lands in suburbia and the boy who befriends him. Oscars for best score, sound, and visual effects don't begin to tell the half of it. Charming, sweet, and effective. And yes, it is available on video at your local Blockbuster. Well, I would hope so if I'm reading the Blockbuster book and they say, yeah, nope, sorry, we don't have it. That's like, I mean, this is a basically a book of every movie ever. Oh. And then they tell you the, with the little V if they have it or not. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let's break this down. Do you believe that this is a tale of a cute alien who lands in suburbia and the boy who befriends him? Um, I wouldn't say he's cute. Yeah, I was about to say, what fault do you have with that sentence? Yeah, well, he's not cute. I also didn't realize it was suburbia until well into the movie because they live next to a cornfield. And I don't know, something about that says rural to me, but who am I to say? California was on the up and up in the late seventies, early eighties. Lots of developments. You yeah, can manifest their house is destiny. Like new. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, but sure. Like I think otherwise that that's good. He's not cute though. He's he's nasty. <laughs> you are in the minority here. I know. know. Like that's fine. I know that I'm gonna have some haters from ep- for, like from episode two on because of my my thoughts on this. But I I just he really grosses me out. And we were watching, like, the behind the scenes, and everyone was like, it's his eyes, it's his kind, sweet, no, those bulging melons in the side of his head, no, those are terrifying, he's so creepy. The way he, like, when it was, like, E.T., like, we were watching it with subtitles, and it was, like, purrs, and I was like, no, okay, he does not purr, okay, cats purr, and it's cute. He goes, like, it's fucking nasty. All right, all right, calm down. I'm sorry. No shade. What is your issue with E.T.? It scared me my whole life. Okay, so you're still just traumatized from your... Yeah, like watching this was actually, like, I'm not joking, like a little traumatizing. Like, it was very much like I'm reliving something I never really sought out to relive. I can, like, 
And we will get into this later on. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to be some, like, E.T. hater. I'm not going to be like, this movie sucks just because, like, I think E.T. is creepy. But, like, just know on a personal level. And I'm sure other people have this with other movies. Maybe even E.T. as well. Where, like, when something really freaks you out as a kid, it's very rare that you just, like, completely forget that. Like, I still kind of shudder at the flying monkeys in Wizard of Oz. Yeah, I mean, I have a memory of the, like, quarantine scene where, like, they take E.T. to the doctor, and, you know, he dies, and they're in that, they're, everybody's wearing the suits and stuff. Like, I remember that scaring the hell out of me as a kid, and it still kind of got me a little bit uh, just now. Yeah, no, for sure. I would not say this is about the boy who befriends him, because, although, obviously, like, they do become friends, it's about, like, a boy who has, like, a metaphysical connection to him. yeah. Which I, I, like, I understand that they probably just said that to save space in this giant book. Like, you only get four lines of text. How do you slim it down? You know? But, like, it is more than friendship that these two have. What else? All right. Okay. <laughs> just kidding. Um, no, it is definitely more than friendship. Like, they are connected between the plants and themselves and, and their thoughts and everything. And um, definitely more than friendship. I will say, prior to watching this movie, I did not know that the little boy was the lead. I thought that this was Drew Barrymore's movie. Mm-mm. I didn't even know she had a brother. No, she is the little the little sister character. You know what I think I was thinking of in terms of like similar like child befriending uh, like an occult being? Which we're going to get into because this kind of kicked off that entire subgenre. Go ahead. I think I was thinking of Casper. Oh my and, God. And female lead. Oh my God. And so I was like, oh, Drew Barrymore's Casper. the lead. What? Anyway. You hate Casper? No, I just like, I, I didn't see Casper coming. I think that's a perfectly good um, comparison. Uh, let's finish this off. The Oscar for best score, the John Williams score in this is insanely good. Obviously iconic. I mean, John Williams does no wrong, but man, does he nail it here. I just like miss giant film scores like this. Yeah. I feel like every time I watch a movie that has like a brilliant film score, I just like instantly it gets a, a big bump up. Like, it, it's just so make or break for me, um, and I wish we did it more. Um, do you believe that it is charming, sweet, and effective? Um, yeah. I think you just have your own personal bias towards it. Yeah. I think, objectively, it's charming, sweet, and effective. Effective, yes. Charming, some of them. <laughs> sweet. Drew. Some of them. <laughs> Drew Barrymore. Okay, can I just say something? Okay, this is going to be maybe the hottest take oh, of no. all. I love the name Gertie. <laughs> I think Gertie is That is the your cu- worst take of the episode I know. by far. I think that Gertie is the cutest name. The cutest name. Okay? I was obsessed. I don't know if anyone else did this. Maybe this is something that I'll talk about one day on Why Two Kids. But my friend group and, like, people in my area were always obsessed with, like, really old names and we would have like alter egos like my friend was Bertha and like I think I was Gertrude and like we were just all obsessed with like the idea that like people would just be alive in 2006 and have the name Bertha um and so I love that her name is Gertie so I don't feel like we need to talk about like E.T. itself too much because it's iconic it's one of the biggest movies ever made everybody's seen it up and uh, you know now that you've seen it yeah. everybody has seen yeah, it yeah we've we've ticked the final box yeah um i think charming sweet and effective is like the three words that sum up steven spielberg's career um there's always obviously this like boyhood wonder element in 
all of his films Mm -hmm. and this might be like the most representative of that like this might be steven spielberg 101 intro to his films i would also say tension He's great at building tension. Yeah, I, well, I think the, the charming and effective part is like there's always this like sense of wonder. There is always this like interest in belonging. There's always an interest in an interest, an interest in family relationships and asking what makes a family. I think that there's like a lot in here about you know being a single mother with three kids that like is not you know lost on me now as, as an adult especially one that was raised by a single mother right um you know he says uh in many places about the film this is a story about divorce and this is a story about children finding um you know a place post divorce and feeling like they have something to give the world you know and i think that that's very clear with you know the little boy here that he feels lost he feels you know directionless he's the middle child he's the middle child he just kind of feels like a bump on a log and this connection to et like literally gives him life and gives him direction and i mean you see that all the time in steven spielberg's work so this is i mean charming sweet and effective is like his filmography you know i think those are the three words i would use to wrap up just about all of his movies, you know, aside from the occasional Jaws, War of the Worlds, which is probably his meanest movie, you know, I think that in general. But, but even War of the Worlds has a huge sense of family and, and connection. No, 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 but like billions of people get wiped out in the meantime. Yeah. And like that is that is not uh, an often that doesn't happen often in his movies. OK, yeah, I, I see what you mean. There's no scene in Lincoln where, you know, like like they don't do I, I guess there's some in Saving Private Ryan. I mean, the. You see it sometimes, right? But in general, there is this, um, and he's. I feel like he's been chasing it for you know fifty years now. There is just this, um, always looking out and up. There is always wondering what else there is, and damn, can this guy tell a story through a camera? I think the reason why he's so effective is those two things. I think one is he is an eternal optimist. He loves hope. He loves, like I've said before, belonging. But he's also a master with a camera. I think he would be a mediocre stage director. I think he is one of the great film directors because he knows how to use a camera like few others do. I th- uh, Thinking of two examples. One, the opening sequence where we're kind of getting a little bit of the aliens and we're getting a little bit of the government and like he's not giving it all the way just yet what exactly is happening. Um, camera placement is really effective in that opening scene. And also, there is a lot of filming adults at a children's view, children's point of view level. All of those scenes in the, um, in the tent, the quarantine tent, are backs of doctors. They are wastes of doctors. There's not a whole lot of like, here's the adult's face. It's a little peanutsy. It's a little the adults go womp, 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 because it's the kid's story. And that's something that like this kind of story and this kind of director, I think, you know, it's a match made in heaven. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally, totally agree. I think that the cinematography in this is 
beautiful for all the reasons oh, go ahead. Oh, that Patrick just said. But also, you know, he he managed to create and like cement himself. I mean, not that he hadn't before this, but, you know, he I feel like this is a perfect example of like he is a creator of iconic shots that people will go on to have burn in their memory forever. Like the bike in front of the moon, you know, like he other, you know, other directors, I feel like dream of, of like creating moments that will live on like that. And he just seems to do it every time. I feel like every movie has some shot, some moment, some thing that just goes into the, the human lexicon of like film, you know? And, um, that's, that's such an immense feat. I think the John Williams score has a lot to do with that. Like his movies are like Hollywood iconography. Yes. You know, like you will always remember the Indiana Jones score. Everybody will always remember the do, 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 do from Close Encounters, right? Uh, you remember the, uh, of course, the bottom in Jaws, right? Um, I think that those two have a, a working relationship that is like arguably unmatched in the history of cinema. I don't think that there are two collaborators that have put together such iconic moments, especially, you know, if film is the medium of both moving images and sound, I don't think you have a moving images guy and a sound guy that get much better than either one of them. So the two of them together really nail it. To your point about the cinematography, we watched the 40th anniversary 4K disc that came out last year, and it looks great. It looks it great. I mean, um, we didn't really touch on this, the Oscar for special effects thing in the blockbuster guide, but aside from... A couple of moments. Like, I would say, like, the flying. The, fly, the was, flying is a little. Say, the flying looks like crap. But it was, like, 1982. But like, those, it's like, amazing. But, like, the close-ups on, like, Elliot's face and stuff. Oh, my God. Like, you can see. I'm so sorry. I think I just rubbed the mic. Um, the close-ups on Elliot's face. You can literally see every pore, every freckle, every molecule inside of his tears. Like, it is so crisp. It is so clear. Um, and, and that's just like really tremendous. I, that's, that's crazy. So uh, go to your local library because libraries are amazing places that have amazing resources. Uh, we went to our local library and picked up E.T., The Extraterrestrial, The Ultimate Visual History, written by Cassine Gaines. And it is uh, a behemoth, probably 300 or so pages long. Before we move on, can I actually say one thing about score before I forget? Yeah. Something, so as we were just saying, we watched this 40th anniversary set. And one thing that was on there was, uh, which one was the one with all the different directors? It's just it's just called like E.T. 40 years later. Or okay. And well, it had a bunch of different directors. It had like J.J. Abrams and it had Chris Columbus. And who was the other person? Uh, I'm not sure. Okay. Um, well, oh, it was the guy who wrote Ready Player One. Yes, I I can't think of his name. Um, but something that that struck me is like all of these people were talking about how like you know obviously they have worked with Spielberg in some capacity, but they all of them were children when E. T. came out, and they were talking about like their first memory of E. T. and how it like got them to love film and how it cemented itself in like in creating the idea of what film should be as like future directors. And something that, you know, really struck me was, like, Chris Columbus, I will, you know, I his Harry Potter movies are the best. Like, they just simply are the best. And that same interaction with score, I think about, like, having a, 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 a visual and 
auditory mentor like Steven Spielberg when you're six years old and you want to become a um, director one day and then going on to create, you know, the, cre- basically, I mean, create Harry Potter well, directorially. He when uh, he was 20 years old or so. I think he said 22 when E.T. came out. But still, like, kids and, like, a sure. director. Like, like, he, he's definitely, right. like, um, impressionable when it comes yeah, to... Yeah, yeah. He's still finding his footing, you know, whatever. He's not he's not working with Spielberg yet, you know? Um, and so, like, going on to basically create Harry Potter directorially because he was the first and then everybody else, I feel like, was just kind of following in his footsteps um, to work on a movie like Harry Potter that has, like, one of the most iconic scores of all all time. Um, I just feel like that's such a great, like, example of how Spielberg's influence goes beyond just, like, his own movies. I agree wholeheartedly. Go to your local library. They have great things there. We picked up E.T. The Visual History by Cassine Gaines, and it is a, a master behemoth book, 250 pages roughly, of um, different behind-the-scenes stories. A lot of technical stuff that we're not going to get into. A lot of technical stuff. Early drafts of what E.T. would look like. A lot Which of the, is even scarier somehow. A lot of the puppeteering, a lot of the storyboards, great stuff. We you know, we are the Drew barry Morathon, so I want to touch a little bit on on Drew's history with this film. So she actually went in originally to audition for Poltergeist. Yes, I heard this. I actually just watched um, an interview with her, I think that I sent to you, where she does an interview with someone who I can't think of, and she tells the story as like a little girl. Um, five-year-old Drew Barrymore. Five-year-old. Five years old. I know. I used to teach kindergarten. Five years old. I can't imagine any of my former students going and and doing this. Five-year-old Drew Barrymore was among the many who auditioned for the supernatural thriller, immediately captivating the casting directors with her outsized personality. She was an extraordinary child for many reasons, says casting associate Marcy Learoff. She came into my office and she sat down across from me in the chair and lifted her dress over her head and proceeded to talk to me with her dress over her head. She was just the most wild, interesting child. During the early auditions, the casting directors wanted to get a sense of each child's personality. So instead of having them read lines, they engaged them in conversation. Um, Barrymore said her room was a mess and filled with skateboards and music equipment (laughs) because she was the lead singer of a punk rock band. She wasn't the least bit nervous, says uh, producer Kathleen Kennedy. She was one of the most comfortable and gregarious of the kids when she first came in. Uh, Let's see. Let's see, I cannot find where it's... Okay, however, as impressive as Barrymore was, Spielberg felt she wasn't the right fit for the supernatural thriller. They interviewed me for Poltergeist for... They interviewed me for Poltergeist first, and he said, she's not really like the girl who's in the script, Barrymore says. So Kathy Kennedy said, well, maybe she's right for E.T. A few months later, she was brought into audition. Yeah. Drew tells the story on a talk show and is very adorable while doing so. It's floating around the internet uh, if you're interested. She was described as young but wise beyond her years. And with her experience in the industry, Barrymore fit the bill. At 11 months old, she earned her first credit in a dog food commercial. And at two and a half, she appeared in the television movie Suddenly Love. When she was four, she appeared in the Ken Russell sci-fi horror Altered States. This rare level of experience in a performer so young, coupled with Barrymore's barnstorming personality, made her a lock with, or excuse me, a lock for the role. We had been gifted with Drew, says Spielberg. I met a lot of Gerties, but Drew came in. She had the part the minute she stepped into the room. There was no second choice. Drew Barrymore was the first choice for this part. I thought she was one of the most remarkable children I had ever met, and I immediately hired her. And it seems like Drew felt similarly, um, at least as a child. I don't know how much she's gone on to talk about him um, in in the years 
Oh, you know what a transition, Taylor. Oh, I know. Um, because the forward of this book is written by Mr. Barrymore. Oh my herself. goodness! Thank you. E.T. is like is unlike any other film. It's the definition of heart and humor, and I felt that way ever since Steven Spielberg cast me as Gertie when I was five years old. One of the many valuable lessons I learned from E.T. was that even if a story takes place in your backyard, anything can be possible, and so much can be at stake. Aww. She talks about this often, and she talks about this a little bit in the foreword and in many of these interviews that you refer to, of like this being like the best film experience of her life yeah. and feeling so loved. And there's a lot later on in the book, I didn't bookmark it, unfortunately, about her feeling like the two older boys were like her older brothers. And how she felt like very connected to E.T. as like a human being, because mm-hmm. she said like, she says in the like, what is it, like 20 year reunion or something uh, special on the on the disc, that she was like, although I knew that you know and obviously she was five years old so she she knew this on a maybe a very subconscious cognitive level six by the time they got to film yeah um but she said like although i knew cognitively that like et was obviously a a puppet it was not a real being i recognized that 25 people were in charge of bringing et to life and so in that way i felt like a very human connection to et and like that that she felt like that was like she said it was like one of my earliest and most impactful friends which i think is so cute and listen there are a lot of moments where she is the little sister character right where she goes like is it a boy or a girl she goes like does it have clothes you know like those are like the little cute lines you write for the six-year-old girl there's a moment there when when they think E.T. has died. They're in like the, the little makeshift hospital thing. And she is crying her eyes out. And yeah. I, Damn, this and girl I feel, can act. And I also just feel like, but that has to, that is a testament yeah. to her real life sentiments where she says that E.T. was a friend. E.T. was a person to her. She felt so connected to it. It must have been really hard for a child who can already ha- probably has difficulties distinguishing between real life um, and and, you know, fantasy i literally to this day i'm 25 years old and anytime an animal dies on screen i have to have patrick tell me don't worry it didn't actually die because i just need like verbal reassurance (laughs) that there isn't like a secret hollywood like animal killing on tv um um gang uh so like yeah i think that's a testament to her feelings towards et i think it's also a testament towards what steven spielberg can do I mean, he directs children very well, right? I mean, what what is the old the old line? It's never work with um, kids or animals, and this is essentially a movie of kids and animals, you know. Um, and you know, he he pulls it off. There's a behind the scenes thing that we watched uh, when he dressed up for Halloween and he dressed up like a woman and he's just being silly and being goofy and like that kind of attitude. Like it's very clearly like the vibe on set free-flowing and fun but then there are some clips where he's directing them and it is like do as i say yeah pull up your left finger touch your nose no too fast too fast okay good good you know yeah like he's getting exactly what he wants from these kids and so like yeah he had to get drew to get to that point of crying but damn, that crying is effective. No, for sure. And I, I just feel like he, it's such a skill to like pull things out of children. Like I said, I know I taught five-year-olds and it is a, it is a skill you have to, you know, almost be born with, I feel like to work with kids so young and, and get them to be, you know, effective and, and, or, or just like to learn something. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's really remarkable the way he's able to do it. 
this also, as we sort of signified, kicked off an entire subgenre of kid finds thing, cannot tell parents, has to save the world. I mean, how many billions of movies can you think of that have that exact plot? This is the most notable and uh, probably the first example, if not the very first, like the one that really you know made it happen. Um, it's something that many filmmakers have turned to, many people inspired by E.T. have turned to, and um, it's still probably one of the best examples of that and one of the most emotionally effective. I mean, we're still seeing it today with things like Stranger Things, you know, like this is still not a tired genre or subgenre. And also, you know, Spielberg goes to Aliens again and again. Did it with Close Encounters. He calls E.T. the sequel to Close Encounters. Comes back to it in War of the Worlds. I know that there's another one off the top of my head I, I cannot think of right now. But like that sense of what else is out there is um, another like, I mean, he's probably one of the top alien guys, you know? Yeah, and I feel like, you know, it's a kind of a shame that I didn't, you know, like E.T. as a kid because, like I said, I am, like, the biggest alien buff ever, a proud alien buff. Like, I will, I can talk about it at length, which I won't do here. Um, but from a very, 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 very young age, I mean, probably four or five years old, because my dad had an interest in aliens and, and the larger world as we know it, um, beyond, you know, what we're taught and told. Uh, I, I have, I've always had this longing to learn about like what else could be out there, what other connections could be formed. Um, I've always been, I feel like I'm an only child. So I've, I've always been very fascinated by connections because I, I lacked a lot of them in my immediate household, only having a mom and dad around. I didn't have people my age really to connect to. So I was always very fascinated by that. And I feel like these themes that he has, you know, really championed in the film world, uh, are something that I could, I can so deeply empathize with now as an adult and probably would have even more so as a child. So it's kind of a shame that E.T. scared me so much as a kid um, because there's so much to take away, I feel like, and so much that um, I, I would have connected to as a young kid. And I also just want to quickly say, speaking on um, Spielberg's ability to, to direct children, I just was thinking, you know, Drew Barrymore was led astray. Um, by I think a lot of people in the industry very soon after she embarked on her film journey. But Steven seems to be a person who creates a safe and welcoming and encouraging set. And it's really refreshing, given her history, uh, that she was able to have an experience like that. Um, and it's unfortunate that not everybody is up to snuff. And, you know, it, not everybody creates those kinds of environments but how beautiful that he did so also in et the ultimate visual history by cassie and Gaines, they're like a bunch of knickknacks there's like fold outs of early drawings there's like a replica set pass of spielberg's things like that there's also a test audience card a universal pictures audience response survey provided to moviegoers attending test screenings of E.T. So, we're going to play a game. It is 1982, and you are in a test screening for E.T. Okay. Okay, so you cannot think of this genre of film exists, right? This is not a thing. Kid finds thing and has to Am save Am I the world. my age in 1982? I'm 25 in 1982? Yes, you are okay. you, and it's 1982. you got to think about what are the effects like at the time? What are the movies like in the world at the time, right? We cannot think of 82 on. 
It's just what we have at the time. So I want you to answer the questions on this audience survey. All right. Dear moviegoer, now that you've seen E.T., the extraterrestrial, won't you please let us know how you feel about it? How would you rate this movie? It is on a scale of one to six, with one being the best. Okay. Okay? So it's excellent, extremely good, very good, good, fair, or poor. One to six. Um, I would say very good. I feel like this is a personal preference that I personally believe would transcend time, and that is that it was a little dry at the beginning. It, it, it is. It's a little slow. It's a, it's a little slow. I think Spielberg has a problem in general. One of my few complaints of his films is they run long. Yeah, it's a little long. He likes his own movies a little too much. Yeah. We don't get enough editing. It runs a little long. Yeah, so I would say very good. I'm going to say extremely good. It doesn't uh, hit me on like a personal level as it does for many people. Like all, I the, feel like I lacked that now as well. Like all the f- fellows we saw in that 40th anniversary thing, like they were clearly personally touched by this movie in a way. Many people have been over the past 40 years. I don't quite get that in the same way, but I think that like technically it is extremely good. Yeah, I feel like that's kind of why I was also very good is it the run long. And also I, I, I also personally lacked like a connection to it right now. While recognizing that had I seen this at maybe 10 years old or something and not been terrified, I probably would have connected to it a lot. So I'm just going to. Well, I think that's the thing is like um, I can recognize the emotional qualities in it. Yeah. Just my own temperature check just doesn't quite get there. Are you trying to gaslight me out of very good? No. No, no, no. Fear mongers. <laughs> what? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. What? I'm just kidding. I'm just like, I like the idea. Fear mongers. No, I just like the idea that like you're you're a, a Universal Pictures exec and you're like intimidating audiences to give it the highest rating. Oh, so I'm the executive and like <laughs> I thought I was also an audience member filling this out. Oh, no. I, I well, You're holding the card in a very like intimidating uh, way so i thought oh, you so were you thought i was trying to go yeah. like are you sure a two <laughs> because of x y and z yeah no 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 i was just a separate audience okay member. gotcha gotcha yeah. we're, we're just debriefing yes okay yeah <laughs> the hell? i thought you had your suit on and you're like oh, hmm, are you sure me. about look that like okay <laughs> what would you tell your friends okay scale of one to five right i would definitely recommend it i would probably recommend it I'm not sure if I'd recommend it or not. I would probably not recommend it. I would definitely not recommend it. Hmm. I would probably recommend it to someone, but I'm not sure who I'd recommend it to. Okay. So I'm going to go with probably just because, like, I know that, like, just thinking, doing a, a, a brief you know, temperature check of the people in my life. Like, I, I cannot say I would definitely be like, oh, so-and-so needs to see this. So, like, I'd probably recommend it. I'd probably go home and say, oh, I just saw you too. It was really good. So to gaslight you, I would say I would definitely recommend it. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I say that is... Because like, you would definitely recommend it to me. If someone asks me, should I see E.T., mm-hmm. I would never say no. I yeah, would never I go like, similarly. well, I know what you like and I don't know. Like, it's a damn good movie. Like, it's it's pretty like... I would I could definitely say like you should watch it. You might not like it as much as everybody else. It might not touch you in the same way as everybody else. But like yes, you should watch it. I would recommend you watch it. Yeah, okay. I feel similarly. Are you male or female? I decline to answer. So the only two options. <laughs> I am female. It's the nineteen eighty two binary. What is your age? Are you under eight? Eight to eleven? Twelve to sixteen? Seventeen to twenty? Twenty one to twenty five? 26 to 30, 
31 to 35, 36 to 49, or 50 and over? Well, as of right now, I'm 21 to 25, although it's making me physically nauseous that in one year I will have to select the answer that goes to 30. <laughs> it definitely gets some wider gaps. It's like 8 to 11, <laughs> but then 36 to 49, and then yeah. 50 and up is an entire year. How often do you go to the movies? More than one time per week, one time per week, two to three times a month, about one time a month, one time every two months, or less often. Well, God, I can't answer that. They didn't have A-listers passes in 1982. (laughs) I mean, the AMC A-list is the reason that we go so much. I would say we go one time per week. Yeah, roughly. On average. On average, yeah. Sometimes we go twice. Sometimes we go zero. I would say it probably evens out. Sometimes we go four. Sometimes we go zero. So, yeah. Did you see this on a Friday afternoon or evening or a Saturday afternoon or evening? Neither. Thursday afternoon from the comfort of my own home. When would you have gone? Um, probably on a Saturday. Afternoon or evening? Um, uh, I'd probably go on a Saturday evening. Okay. Honestly, like, Patrick likes to do things on Fridays. If it were up to me, I like to stay in on Fridays. Did you see this in Chicago, Denver, or Seattle? <laughs> Um, I saw it in Chicago because it's the only place of those three places I've been. Okay. Which of the following phrases best describes your feelings about the various elements in the movie E.T., the extraterrestrial? So once again, scale of one to six, one being the best. Excellent, extremely good, very good, good, fair, and poor. You can just give me the number if you want. Okay? Makes it easier. So on a scale of one to six, how would you rate the film E.T., the extraterrestrial? Um, I would say... Maybe that means the character E.T.? It's not very clear. I think it means the character. I think it means the film. It's in all caps. I think it means the film. But then it goes in to talk about the characters. Well, I but we already answered the exact same all questions. Right, right, sure. So just, just for our purposes, say it's the character. Okay. Because there was, there was a Hollywood exec that was going, um, and in this case, we were talking about the alien itself, not to be confused with the movie. Um... I give him a a poor. (laughs) A six? Yeah, out of my personal vendetta. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to go. We we have too many to go through. I'm not going to do mine. Henry Thomas as Elliot, the boy who befriends E.T. Oh, excellent. One? Yes. I'm going to say the words because where do you even see these numbers? One, 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 three, 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 three. Oh, I thought it was saying like negative. It's just a dash? Yeah. Oh, that's stupid. Okay, anyways. Sure. Do you want me to say the number? Uh, Can I say the word? I just think folks at home don't know the difference between... It's fine. It's fine. It's a podcast. Drew Barrymore as Gertie, Elliot's sister. Um, I would say extremely good and not excellent because the girl... Don't get me wrong. You're fired. She's brilliant. Oh, yeah. (laughs) She has a smirking problem. She cannot cannot keep a straight face to save her life. I mean, and don't get me wrong. It's precious. Like, I'm not going to... Even Spielberg... Spielberg. Even Steven Spielberg himself could not go in and be like, try one more time because I think he was probably just charmed by it. I think that there was a lot left on the cutting room. Like, there were probably many clips of her just... Not even Losing close it. to, yeah. Yeah, she'll be like, you're mean. But she's just like, you're mean. And it's just like, it's adorable. We see the same thing in SNL, which we'll yeah, talk we'll about. Talk about um, but yeah, she that, for that reason, I'm sorry, Drew. <laughs> Love you, but you have a couple more years of experience to go. <laughs> How about Dee Wallace as Mary, Elliot's mother? Um, I'd say... I'd say somewhere between very good and extremely good. Okay, so a 2.3, a 2.5? Yeah. 
Robert McNaughton as Michael, Elliot's brother. Ugh, he kind of gave me the heebie-jeebies. I'm just going to go very good for him. A three. A three. Peter Coyote as Keys, the man who tracks down E.T. I'm struggling to even put a face to that man. I think the, the entire presence of the government is very scary. Yes, I think I very agree. effective. I think very effective, yeah. Uh, the story, one through six. Story. Hmm. I'm just looking at the other things first. The story, I, I'm going to say extremely good. Again, I just think that some things could have been um, could have been left. The special effects, one through six. It's 1982. I know, in 1982. Uh, can I also give an answer for 2023, though? If you want. No, okay, I just won't. But um, in 1982, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say extremely good. I mean, I'll say excellent. I think it's a one. I think it's excellent. Uh, the music. Uh, excellent. A one. I agree. Uh, the humor. Mm, extremely good. Yeah, I give it a very good. I give it a three. We're yeah. we're the two, three, two point five yeah. range. Didn't uh, not a lot of geeking going on in yeah. this. Unless uh, we're geeking at Drew geeking. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Uh, last one, the relationship between E.T. and Elliot. He only has one L in his name? Yeah. Interesting. Um, the relationship between E.T. and Elliot. Um, I would say, hmm. Again, I'm going to say extremely good personally, just because, again, maybe it would happen on, like, a rewatch, but, like, I just feel like there was a disconnect between me and that relationship a little bit. But I recognize that it's it's built to be strong. I'm gonna give it a one. I think that's like I think it's the most effective part of the movie when he's like, like when ET dies and he like gets well, up yeah, and he screams that's, like. That, I will say like when he's like ripping the heart monitor off, like that'll get yeah. you. That'll get you. So then it says the space below is provided for any other comments you would like to make. This is your chance. We're gonna wrap up our ET conversation here. This is your chance to, for any other comments you'd like to make before we move on to SNL. Um, my comment in 1982 would be, uh, I'm an aspiring talent director and I'd like to sign Miss Drew Barrymore to my, my brand new agency and see how it goes. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I think that I would say, you know, excellent casting, um, you know, excellent, excellent movie all around. Uh, E.T. was a little frightening, and I can imagine other small children may be frightened by this movie, despite the family-friendly vibe that it has going on. Um, but Spielberg does it again with um, a really, a really tremendous feat. So E.T. is an overnight sensation. Blows up. Drew Barrymore, an overnight sensation at freaking six years old, seven years old. She goes on to host SNL. The You know that like the 16-year-old boy that plays the oldest brother is like, oh, god damn it. Are you for real, her? She is the youngest host in the history of SNL still to this day. For good reason. For good reason. It's for a little weird. For good reason. It's a little weird. I like, would say she should be the youngest by 16 years. <laughs> I can't think of, like, a recent kid performance off the top of my head right now. I don't know why. Can you? No. I mean, like, Jenna Ortega, I think, is 20, and she just hosted. No, I mean, like, can you think of, like, but, a, no, a movie kid. that has a 10-year-old in it? Oh, a movie. Oh, my God. Goodness. Um, uh, Like, Megan. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. there you go. Can you imagine, like, the little girl and Megan no. hosting SNL? No. <laughs> no, I cannot. That'd be so weird. I would be like, what? Oh, excuse me. Things happen. Um, well, that's because this was 
the dark ages of SNL. This was the time when Lorne Michaels left the show, and if it wasn't for Eddie Murphy, who considered the show the Eddie Murphy show, it would be um, – it probably would not have gone on. I mean, it was terribly unfunny. Um, they didn't know what the hell the show was. Like, I feel like the 70s, like, figured out – like, the show now resembles the show in the 70s a lot. They picked it apart a lot in the early 80s and made it this different thing, and it was funky. And I got to say, watching it back, we watched it courtesy of Peacock, who has you know every um, SNL episode on there. A lot missing. They don't have musical performances. Clearly, just missing other like sort of sketches and stuff that I don't know what happened to the, you know the um, the tapes because this was only like thirty nine minutes long. Thirty nine minutes and thirty six of them are filled up with one joke. <laughs> Yes. Um, I want to give a quick preface um, to, like, our relationships. Obviously, like, Patrick and I are both 25. We were not alive when this movie came out. We were not alive when this uh, SNL aired. Um, But I want to give a quick preface that Patrick used to watch really old SNL all the time as a kid. Correct? Yeah. I, I, aside from the 80s, which wasn't really available on, like, home video, aside from, like, one Eddie Murphy tape for very obvious reasons because the 80s weren't funny... Um, I've seen just about it all. Um, however, I feel like I have done like a little bit of like retroactive, um, you know, SNL watching, but it was really like late nineties and stuff. Um, like people that I would have grown up with in other things and then going back and watching them on SNL. Um, so like I definitely was not until like I met Patrick and I've watched some things like in, in his personal home movie collection um from what he had as a kid like i had not really seen much from this era or the era before or even the era slightly after um i really pick up around late 90s early 2000s with snl so lord michaels leaves the show and executive producer dick ebersall takes over and he is essentially known for running into the ground so here's your television history here's the folks at home pop culture history about this you know, he was not um, a, a leader that people trusted. They did not like him. He did not get along with people. A couple people in uh, another great book, Live from New York, as told by its stars, writers, and guests. Excuse me, An Uncensored History of SNL, as told by its stars, writers, and guests, by Tom Chills and James Andrew Miller. If you're an SNL fan, this book is a must-read oral history. Great book. A couple people in here say, I didn't mind Dick too much. In general, they didn't like him. And I think that this quote from Tim Kazarinski um, kind of sums up in general how people felt about him and his tenure running the show. He says, somebody pointed out to me at read-throughs that Ebersol didn't really know what was funny. He would look over to Davy Wilson, the director, for some sort of indication. And of course, Davy had done the show for so long that he was very tired. He only cared if it was easy to shoot. If it was difficult, he would just move his head from side to side and Ebersol would kill him. So he took a lot of the lead from Davy. This is a guy that doesn't really, he isn't a very funny guy himself. He doesn't have you know, really a strong backbone. Um, he just not the right guy for this show. SNL is a very specific animal. Um, it feeds off specific energy, works in a very specific way. And he just didn't really seem like the guy for that. Um, he goes on to say the thing with Ebersol was that he was always looking for the lowest common denominator. And I think that that is sort of indicative here. Not a lot of cutting edge humor. We're watching this and there it basically comes down to three things. One, topical humor that we just did not understand because we were not alive at the time and like they were like if they did like a Reagan joke I would understand that but like people I've literally never even 
heard of. Just it went clearly right over was my head. like the way that I interpreted it with, you know, obviously no knowledge of these people and like what who they were. It's like with Weekend Update, it basically seemed like the jokes had already written themselves on on local news and so all they had to do was like reword them and it was going to be funny. Like it wasn't even like inferring something that you hadn't thought about like Weekend Update kind of does now with current events. Like it was very much just like we can just say this funny news thing that you've already heard but because it's on here it should be funny. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that like somebody watches SNL from today in 40 years and they reference Mr. Beast. It's not going to be funny at all. Like that just happens with topical humor. This felt particularly like specific in a way that we, you know, just didn't give us anything. Drew is very cute. She has a smirking problem. She's really only in like two sketches where she is like the little girl. Like there's two sketches about um, her being a part of a family. One of uh, which is about her being adopted, you know? And then there's, I think the best sketch in the whole thing is the, the opening where her dressing room is like this huge pink covered in stuffed animals. And they're like, what the hell? It's a a bed. And they're like, what the hell, Dick? Like, you know, we can't get, you know, fresh coffee in the break room. And she gets all this. Mm -hmm. I think that was a funny bit. I also think it's funny that they're all going like, what are they crazy? They're getting this, you know, kid to do it. What does SNL become? And then she walks in and they're like, Hi, <laughs> yeah, it's a funny bit. You're so cute, and like that's yeah. that is really funny. I, I quickly, are we ready to talk about bits at all? Because you touched on the adoption bit, and I kind of, you could do, do I, I just kind of want to talk to you about that bit because I've been sitting on this bit for a couple days. And one thing that I was thinking about is like, so, so the premise of it is that she lives in an orphanage, and um, at like a like, are, not all orphanages are run by nuns. No. Okay, so no. it's a it's a it's a <laughs> nun <laughs> it's a nun orphanage. Uh-huh, one of um, those. Yeah, one of those. Uh that we see in bits more than life. Um and it's between her and another child. And she's been there forever, and there's a joke that says, like, you're gonna be the only person left at this orphanage that has liver spots, you know, that she's just gonna die and rot because she's so unagreeable and bratty and whatever. And this family comes in and she goes like, are you excited to meet them? And the little boy goes like, gee, I would love to meet them. I would love a new family. And she goes like, no, I don't want to meet them. They suck. I already know, basically. (laughs) And it's just that bit over and over. So the little boy goes in, he talks to them for two minutes, he comes back and then he goes, well, gee, I hope they like me. And she goes like, they would have to be lunatics not to like you or pick you. Like, it's going to be you. Don't worry about it. They send Drew in. And I guess the idea is they give Drew alcohol because they're also alcoholics. No, 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 no. Their last name is Weiner. As in they whine. Oh. Because she's little and she boohoos and she whines. And they, no, none of the parents don't like anything. They all, you know, they're, they're kind of Karen-y, right? And so they like this little girl who's also disagreeable. Oh. They're not the winos. They're the whiners. I thought she you was just like, did I'm not gonna... get the bit at all. <laughs> well, I thought it was funnier my way. No, they're like because uh, that's when they go like, okay, the adoption process goes six months, and they go six months. Yeah, Can we take her home now? No. Oh, <laughs> I thought that they were just drunk and gave her a sip, and then they were all drunk. But you know why I thought that? 
because there is a joke in the opening monologue um, where they go, would you like a glass of milk, sweetie? And she says her very iconic SNL line. This is the one thing that I knew about this episode before I saw it, this one thing, which is she goes, a glass of milk, I'm a Barrymore. Get me a drink straight and make it a double. That's pretty And so I had this idea of like, alcoholism and drew barrymore in my head so i was like oh whiner no why no okay no. well huh, that's kind of funny and then the third and final bit which is 95 percent of the episode is this and you've you've heard about it before if you're you know an snl super fan uh, you know maybe you're not but if you are you know andy kaufman did many years on the show he'd come in he'd do his mighty mouse bit he'd come in and he'd do um you know different you know falling down Pratt Falls, and he did his Andy Kaufman stuff on SNL, and I guess for whatever reason, he and Dick Ebersol did not uh, see eye to eye, and they did a bit. You, the viewers, get to vote. Does Andy Kaufman get banned from the show forever, or does he get to come back? And it's, you know, 1-800-KEEP-ANDY, 1-800-DUMP-ANDY, call in the next 60 minutes, and at the end of the show, we'll, we'll tell you. And different cast members every five minutes will come on, and I'll be like, I really want you to keep Andy. Andy's so funny. And then you should really call 1-800-KEEP-ANDY. Don't call 1-800-DUMP-ANDY. And then like five minutes later, like a different cast member will be like, Andy takes all of my spotlight. You should call 1-800-DUMP-ANDY. You get the idea, okay? Yeah. They do it. Oh, my God. They yeah, do like it every, all the time. Literally, like every single castmate gets their own two and a two-ish minute yeah. spiel yeah um, and it's and the it's same only, joke every time and it's the same joke every time <laughs> the only thing that was like refreshing about it is they do and i understand that i'm about to compare this to something that is new age and that they did it first but just for our contemporary listeners out there um they do like a billy on the street thing where they go up and they interview people and they say like do you want to keep andy kaufman and then people go like i think he's vulgar and horrible and then someone goes i think he's really funny and someone goes uh who's andy kaufman and they just just do this kind of like what does New York think about Andy Kaufman bit, which I think was you know funny and effective, but it gets really bogged down when it's just nothing but that for the whole show. And because we're missing roughly twenty minutes of footage, whether that be the musical performances or I, I would assume some sketches in there. I should have looked this up before I just said that, but I think just based on runtime, we're missing some more. Sometimes it'll happen like three in a row. We're like, clearly there was a musical number in the middle of that, but because we don't get that on Peacock, it's just like eight straight minutes of this. And of its 39 minutes, I mean, I really think it's like 29 of the 39 minutes is this bit. And in case you were curious, no, Drew does not get to tell her thoughts on Andy Kaufman. Oh. So it's not even like we're watching the Drew Barrymore no. episode. Like right. it's just a like bit with the cast. And so Drew is in the opening monologue. She's um, in the the orphanage one. What is the other bit she's in? There's another one about a family. I can't remember it off the top of my head right now. I can't remember either. I don't know why. Um, and then she's also, she's not in Weekend Update. Um, although you can. Very rarely are the hosts in Weekend Update. Well, but separately, did they always do, like, now we see a lot of, like, Weekend Update guests with cast members, like, and they play different characters? That happened a lot in the 90s. Okay. I was curious where that originated. And like, that Adam was... Sandler would do that a lot. Um, David Spade would do it some. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, and now it's just kind of become a regular occurrence. Okay, gotcha. Cool. I wasn't sure. Um, so, like, yeah. no Drew was really only in, in a couple things. And, you know, we 
aren't going to do a ton of her TV stuff. We didn't do it for the Vince Vaughn-a-thon either. We do, we're going to do Santa Clarita Diet, Netflix, what is TV is like a whole other conversation, which we'll get into in the film history portion of this podcast, right? Way down the line. We're not going to do a ton of TV stuff though, because like it's a film history podcast. If you did every single Tonight Show appearance, you did every single one-off guest star in The Simpsons, like, you know, it would take us freaking 10 years to do this. So we, we you know, we have to slim it down in some way. We've said we're watching every single movie, but we do, and we did it for Vince. We'll do it here as well. We do do all the SNL episodes because like, we just like SNL and I feel like I can speak to it pretty well. Um, I feel like there are great resources to speak to it. And so like, I think that this is, um, uh, I, I think it's something that we can tackle, Taylor and I. That being said, it was unfortunate that this didn't really help our conversation at all because it was kind of the should we keep or should we dump Andy Kaufman episode. I also do think like in general in the way that the Taylor and Patrick Athons, whether it's a Vince Vaughn-a-thon, Drew Barrymore-a-thon, our future Athons, um, the way that we you know are charting um, are charting film history through chronological explorations of people's filmographies. SNL kind of is doing the same thing because people go on to promote their movies like that is the thing or TV shows but I feel like it it originated in movies you know and I feel like the reason that we do things like Santa Clarita Diet just to kind of give you a little back background if you haven't watched the or if you haven't listened to the Vince Vaughnathon in a similar way that we did um I almost said True Blood True Detective for Vince is like the 21st century thing is that People make movies in miniseries form, you know? Not not that I'm saying Santa Clarita died. I think it is particularly episodic. Yeah. But at the same time, like, who is a movie person and who is a TV person, those lines have been blurred, you know? Yeah. Aside from the occasional George Clooney, who in the 90s was able to jump from TV to movies, it didn't happen a whole lot until streamers, and now there are not movie people and TV people you know, it's just one thing now. Yeah, and so I feel like um, it would be different if she was on, you know, like if, if we were doing the Joseph Gordon-Levitt-a-thon, I don't know if we'd be watching all of Third Rock from the Sun, you know, like it, but but we might watch, um, I'm trying to think, he's done some some other like more filmy uh, TV things in, in, in recent years. So like, just to give you kind of an idea, if you're not familiar with the Vince Vaughn-a-thon and this is your first time listening, with which if so, welcome. Um, that's, you know, kind of, kind of we make up our own rules but at the same time uh we think that it it serves our mission of exploring film history there's a method to the madness and i'm going to talk a little bit how we're jumping chronology a little bit next week in a second i have one more thing i want to read about the andy kaufman bit um and uh it says here it is uh from andrew kurtzman With Dick, there was always an element of fear, like his argument with Andy Kaufman. I was standing there backstage when they screamed at each other. There was a certain amount of fuck you and screaming down the little entranceway leading into the studio there. It was a big confrontation. It was the show where Andy was voted off the air. I will say Dick was always in control. Even when Dick was out of control, Dick was perfectly in control. And I think that that really sums up this period of the show. I don't think we're going to watch another SNL for like, 15, 20 years or something. Rightfully so. (laughs) (laughs) Because then she'd be the correct age. Um, But, um, you know, I think that, like, I'm glad we don't have to watch any more 80s SNL. It's pretty bad. I personally think. Early 80s it is. I personally think, okay, and and I know that this isn't the way things are done. I just I just said that Jenna Ortega hosted and she was, she's 20 years old, I believe. Um, I think that you need to be legal drinking age for many reasons uh, to to be an SNL host. I think that that is, I think that that should be the cutoff. Not 18. I don't care if you can serve your country. I think you need to be able to drink with the castmates. 
Yeah. Legally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, also, you know, like I said, it was the Eddie Murphy show. You know, people can argue Joe Piscopo all they want. I- I'm not convinced. It was the Eddie Murphy show. And um, he's he's barely in this episode. I think he's really in like the um, opening monologue or not the monologue, the, um, the, the cold open. And then he does one of the Andy Kaufman bits. And like, that is it. So we didn't even get that out of it. It's kind of just like a womp womp. Yeah, I mean, it fell a little flat, but it still got me really excited. I think that regardless of whether or not if it makes sense or if it is a good idea or if it is even okay ethically, it is cool to be on our second episode and Drew has made history in some way, uh, in some significant way. So, that yeah, that's that's cool. I'm excited for future SNL performances where I'm not like, why the hell is she on there? You can see a little method to the madness in uh, this and the Vince Vonathon as well, while you know, Vince's third movie was Swingers, like one of his most iconic movies. We wanted another person where early on we would get to that iconography. We would get to those famous, memorable performances. We did not want, no offense to all these people who work really hard, someone who did a bunch of indie nothings for 15 years and then exploded, right? That's doesn't, I don't think that would really serve our show very well because we're trying to talk about Hollywood and 15 years of paying your dues doesn't really, uh, help that conversation a ton um and so right away we we get to some um famous true stuff one more method to the madness next week we're gonna um uh tweak chronology a little bit the next movie uh is 1984's firestarter uh based on the stephen king novel there's a movie in between that and the 1985 film cat's eye but that's also a Stephen King movie. And so we're going to skip over that one movie. I, I think it's Irreconcilable Differences. I could be wrong off the top of my head. I think I'm right, though. We're going to skip over um, that film and do the two Stephen Kings back-to-back because it just makes you know the most sense. In one episode. Correct? In one episode, that is. Yeah, we're doing a double feature episode last week, kind of like this week. Not quite a double feature because SNL is not a movie, but you know, two topics. Um, we're going to do both Stephen Kings next week, Firestarter and Cat's Eye. You know, we're going to do things like we're doing, we're saving Scream for a Halloween special. We're going to do all the Christmas ones at Christmas time, like we did, you know, for Vince. Um, you know, we're not always going to be perfect when things make sense to pair them. We're going to pair them. Um, this being, um, I think, one of the best examples of that. So next week, the Stephen King double feature of Firestarter and Cat's Eye. Yeah, I think in general, we're just trying to avoid any like giant jumps in chronology. Like we would never pair this eight-year-old or sorry, six-year-old uh, SNL performance with a thirty-two-year-old SNL performance because she's just at different points in her career and Hollywood is in a different place. But in general, if it's a similar time and we compare it, uh, we we enjoy having those conversations where, where we're able to see and compare. We're going to do both, you know, this is a long time, I don't know, six months from now. We're going to do both Charlie's Angels probably in one episode. Yes, there were probably five movies in between and they were four years apart, you know, but like that's one conversation. Yeah, definitely. Um, This has been great. I can't believe that I'm no longer an E.T. virgin. Um, I can check it off my film bucket list. It's It's just a specific rough wording there. Oh, well, I... I'm also a five year old boy. E.T. Pop My Cherry. All right. Um, <laughs> you can find the show at Barry Morathon on Twitter. You can also send us an email, barrymorathon at gmail.com. The best place to find us, however, is featurepresentationvideo.com. It's the home of everything that we do, the Drew Barry Morathon, all of the archives of the Vince Vonathon, uh, the show Why Two Kids, where we're talking about movies, TV shows, snacks, 
music games from our childhood around the turn of the 21st century. Also, every column that we write, everything that we do can all be found on futurepresentationvideo.com. You go in, you put your email address in. We're going to send you everything that we do for free. We put out stuff five days a week, Monday through Friday. We talk film, TV, pop culture, history, and that's all at our website, futurepresentationvideo.com. If you're listening to this on your listening app of choice and not the website, consider moving over to the website. But I know you love your Spotify, your Apple Podcasts. It'd be really great if you could leave us a nice five-star review. Say something nice about the show. Tell us what you're excited um, to hear when it comes to the Drew Barrymore-a-thon. You can find me online, and I would love if you would interact with me, whether that's about the show, whether that's about anything. Um, you can find me on Letterboxd at Taylor Malone. See what we're up to when we're not watching Drew Barrymore movies. And you can find me on Twitter at MailerTalone. You can find me at Patrick J. Regal, everywhere you find people online. Next week, Firestarter and Cat's Eye for our Drew Barrymore, Stephen King double feature Every episode comes out on Fridays, so you can expect that one next Friday. See you then. See you then, folks.